Yes, so uh, Luke 9, 51 will start, and it's on page 734. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Sumatran village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one will put his hand to the plough and looks back as looks back is fit to for service in the kingdom of God. Amen. Mary just said to me on her way out, knock him dead, Dad, so that's a good bit of encouragement from <coughs> Mary, but won't go that far. <laughs> All right, now let's um, pray and then we'll think about this passage in Luke. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day that we share together now, and we thank you that we can think about your word and uh, how it can apply to our lives. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be, to be willing to put these things into practice now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, where is your life going? Here's a quote from a song. How does it feel to be on your own with no direction home, like a complete unknown, like a rolling stone? That's a line from a song called Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. And he starts to tap into a feeling that people can have at times where they're wondering where they're going in life. How does it feel to be like that? Well, the short answer is terrible. Uh, It's a rotten feeling to uh, just be out on your own. It's not much fun always just being on your own. With no direction home, wherever home happens to be, like a complete unknown. It's it's the sort of thing that midlife crises are made of, isn't it? Those kind of ingredients. People feeling like they're directionless, anxious to figure out Uh, where they're going and how to even get there. But as Christians, 
Are we clear about where we're going in life? Do we know the direction that our life journey is taking? Or are we altogether anxious about where it is that we're going? Well, the good news is that um, from the Word today, we see that we've got a, a great place to start because Jesus knows where he's going. That's the, that's the comfort. He knows where he's going. And in his love and his kindness, uh, he calls us to be those who follow him so that we know where we're going in life as well. Well, the historical context for this topic comes out of verse 51 because the destination is Jerusalem uh, that Jesus is headed to. But this idea that Jesus is going to be headed towards Jerusalem comes up a little bit earlier in chapter 9 verse 31 when we see that Jesus is transfigured with Moses and Elijah and they start to raise the topic of the time for his departure, that uh, Greek word that's translated, uh, that, that's actually, we translate it departure but it's actually exodus that Scott's spoken about in the past. Well, Jesus goes to accomplish his exodus at Jerusalem. It's not an exodus from Egypt. And this time it centres on the work of Jesus. It's not centering on the, on the work of Moses to liberate God's people. And the, the, the liberation that Jesus is bringing, setting people free, is not from slavery in Egypt. It's slavery from sin and death. And so at this point in the story in this gospel, we get to a, a stage where we're on the road again. We've reached a kind of turning point in verse 51, and I'm going to read that out to us. It says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, he's been doing miracles, healing, and teaching, calling people to receive the good news that he's bringing in the kingdom of God. But his ministry has been taking place up the north of Israel, around near Galilee. And he hasn't yet ventured to the capital, Jerusalem, where the temple is. And so at this point in the story, there's a definite shift in the narrative. This is one of the markers of the structure in the Gospel of Luke. And we see that Jesus is bent on going to Jerusalem because we're told that he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. It doesn't say that in our English translations. It just says he, uh, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, but he sets his face to Jerusalem. And in verse 53, the same language about uh, the Samaritans not receiving him because he set his face to Jerusalem comes up as well. And so this demarks the next section of this gospel until he enters. That's where we'll be for the next uh, little while. But the question comes up, how will Jesus be received as he's on his journey? Uh, that was raised back when he spoke at the, the synagogue at Nazareth. How would people receive him? And again, as he makes his way to Jerusalem, the topic comes up, how will people receive Jesus? Well, we see that people give him a different kind of reception. Just as people today uh, respond differently to Jesus, back then they were different in their response as well. well. The first place on this road trip, though, is into Samaria. So we'll see that in verse 52 and 53. And he sent messages on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Now, during the reign 
of King Solomon, after his time, the, the nation became divided. The people in Samaria were reluctant to go and worship God at Jerusalem and there was a cult established at Mount Gerizim in Samaria. But ultimately, on account of their unfaithfulness to God, to walk away from the commandments of God and to go and worship and serve the Baals, God brought judgment on the people of Israel. And that took the form of the Assyrian army. Specifically, there were three uh, Assyrian kings that have been recorded in, in uh, history apart from the scriptures. Tiglath-Pileser, his son Shalmaneser V, and Sargon II, they consecutively besieged Samaria. King Hoshea was imprisoned, and then three years later, Samaria was attacked until the tribes of the north fell, and they were carried off to Assyria in 722 BC. Now, the reason why I raise these things is because it shows that the Bible accords well with other history. It's recorded in the Bible, but the records of the Assyrians also show these things up. Well, this was a policy of deportation to take people out of the land of Israel, and then Sargon followed this up by bringing people from uh, Babylonia, Elam and a few other places from around the world and he settled them in with the remaining peasants that were left in this northern part of the kingdom. And so ultimately a mixed population began to arise that took on the name of the Samaritans from the name of the capital that was there. But by the time of Jesus' uh, life and times, uh, they'd actually become less of a, a formal nation, but more known as a bit of a religious sect. But they were looked down upon by the Jews, uh, and the Samaritans seemed to have little love lost for the Jews as well. In fact, there's uh, other records from Josephus how sometimes the Samaritans would attack the Jews as they were headed through to Jerusalem. Well, Jesus doesn't look down on them. In fact, he plans to walk through Samaria on his travels to Jerusalem. But since the uh, Samaritans figure out that he's on his way to Jerusalem and not necessarily planning to, to stay for any good length of time, uh, they don't want to know about him. And so they don't welcome him. In fact, he's rejected. Now, the idea that Jesus might not be welcomed or that he gets rejected uh, isn't something new in this gospel. When Jesus was even a little baby, at the temple when uh, Simeon held him in his arms, he said that this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And so if Jesus is rejected and we're people who follow him, I guess it's part of our world that we could expect some degree of rejection too. If we stand with Jesus and others oppose him, we might find ourselves in situations where be, we're being opposed also. But this is nothing new. Uh, Jesus said the same kinds of things to his disciples. In John 15, 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If we're rejected because we're Christians, I guess one of the uh, only good things that seems to come out of that is at least we know which side of the war we stand on. At least we know which side of the battle we're on. We stand with him. And Peter wants to encourage us if we're in situations where we are rejected on account of Christ. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief 
or an evildoer or even as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. At least if we suffer as a Christian, we know we stand with God. But God in his kindness has also given us a whole lot of people who, who do love Jesus as well, and, and we can find a home there. Well, as they went on their way, some of the disciples found this rejection hard to take. Uh, and it seems they want to respond with some sort of revenge. They seem to make a bit of a blunder. In verse 54 we read, When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he said, then he and his disciples went to another village. Well, in that neighbourhood, as they passed through Samaria, they might have been thinking of times gone by when Elijah was there and he'd rejected some of the people who were against God. Because it was in Samaria that King Ahab had reigned. King Ahab had erected some altars to, for Baal in the house of Baal and he built that in Samaria. So there was this area was characteristic of Baal worship. And it was at Samaria that uh, Elijah said there's going to be a drought that's going to come on the land for three years because the people had rejected following God's commands and they started to follow the Baals instead. It was at Mount Carmel where uh, Elijah praised to God uh, when the prophets of Baal had gathered. And at the altar fire rained down from heaven, consumed the offering, consumed the wood and the stones, the water that was in the trench and then the prophets of Baal got dismissed and cleaned up. But in uh, 2 Kings chapter 1, that's the real example where we start to see uh, in Samaria that Elijah calls down a fire from heaven uh, against some of the henchmen that were coming to be sent to take hold of Elijah uh, by evil king Azariah. And so what we see is there's precedent for fire coming down from heaven. Now what that fire from heaven really looked like, it's, it's difficult to know. Uh, was it like the time of Sodom and Gomorrah where sulphur rains down? Or was it something more like a lightning strike? And the language that they used to describe lightning might have been fire from heaven. It's difficult to know. But as the um, disciples are passing through Samaria, they're probably thinking about Elijah and, uh, and the enemies of God. And so they get a little bit excited and they probably start to overshoot. They've been already talking about who's the greatest of them. And they probably, you know, they're hanging around with Jesus and he's fantastic. They might have started to think that they've got a bit more clout than is, than is necessary. Well, Jesus corrects them. Uh, despite the fact they're travelling with him and they're getting carried away, uh, we see that, he, that God has plans for Samaria. And even as the book of Acts unfolds, we see the gospel goes from Jerusalem and Judea and out into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus comes to seek and save the lost and the Samaritans find themselves in that place too. And it's not yet time for God to bring the judgment day. God will bring the judgment day in his own time. But until then, we're told that he's being patient allowing time for people to be repentant. Well, that's something that the disciples were beginning to learn. But on the way, on the road, 
Jesus begins to challenge some would-be disciples. We see those uh, three examples come up from verse 57 to 62. The first one involves the, the cost of commitment of following Jesus. In verse 57 we read, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Well, for this person, it's just all too easy to say, Oh yeah, I'll follow you wherever you go. No problem. It's very simple, isn't it, to say things like that? It just rolls off the tongue. But it's a whole lot more difficult to follow things through in practice. Well, Jesus points this out. He's saying it's going to be hard. Whilst the animals have each got their homes, the foxes have got their dens and the, the birdies have got their nests, he's saying, well, he's not necessarily even got a, a home himself. Since he took on flesh and entered this world, uh, he didn't seem to have a real fixed address, particularly in his ministry period. He didn't have very many creature comforts or material possessions. In places like Samaria, he was rejected and he didn't necessarily have a home. And so, although a person could just say pretty easily, yeah, I'll follow you, he reminds the person it's not as easy as it sounds, that they've got to count the cost to see whether they're really ready to follow him. Well, we don't see what that person's response is, but we can think about our own lives too. Are we ready to count the cost to follow Jesus and, and find that if, if it's hard... Are we prepared to continue to follow him as well? Well, the next person says, is the one that Jesus challenges in verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now in this section, Jesus takes the lead. And in response, the man comes up with an excuse that looks um, pretty reasonable, doesn't it? You know, we're already told in the Old Testament in the Fifth Commandment, honour your parents. Well, he's, he's going to get ready to bury his dad. That seems like an honourable thing to do. But Jesus responds with a wise saying, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So how are we to interpret this? Well, in summary, it seems, he seems to be saying, you've got to put God first. And his mission is of utmost importance. So let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead, since you've got a higher calling, namely serving God and proclaiming his kingdom. Now we know that Jesus doesn't want people to avoid honouring their parents. We know that because he's corrected the Pharisees at times when they've tried to wriggle out of their responsibility to honour their parents and provide for them. But he seems to be using this strong kind of language to draw attention to the supreme value of serving God and being a follower of Jesus and being engaged in his mission to save the lost. In fact, we can't avoid the conclusion that part of being a follower of Jesus is also about helping others to follow him as well. Now, each person's got their own different gifts and abilities uh, and we'll all be involved in that mission in different ways. But ultimately, Jesus comes to bring people into uh, God's kingdom. That's why he came, lived and died. And even in this passage, we're reminded that he's about to be ascending into heaven. And that is to bring people 
into God's kingdom. And we've got a, a responsibility and role in that mission as well. Still another in verse 61 says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, I've got to be honest with you here, folks. Um, farming's not one of the things that I've got uh, a strength in life. I don't know a lot about it. And uh, if you have a look at the veggie patch in our backyard, you can see that I've left that to the boys and they've got, I don't know, their own father's agricultural sense. It's not looking great. But from what I've read, I must underscore, in the world of ploughing, one of the challenges is to get the plough lines going straight. You've got to cut straight when you're ploughing. And just for the record, as I explain this to one of the, the 9 o'clock or the 8.45 congregation, one of the farmers came up to me and he said, good on you, Pete. Yep, you got it right. Well done. The risk is that if you look over your shoulder when you're ploughing, a bit like when you hit a good shot in tennis and you admire the stroke, you don't get ready to follow up with the next one that goes back past you. If you look over your shoulder at what you've ploughed, oh, gee, that was a good line. The trouble is you bend the plough and you get a big bow in your line. And so you've just mucked up what you've just done. And so the point is you can't be looking back. You've got to be looking to the future. That's the message. Jesus is saying, look, if you're coming after me, don't look back and start to put conditions on. You've got to remember we're looking to the future here. And if you look into the future, you're fit to serve in the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus isn't against family. Earlier he's already said, though, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So he's not against family, but he's saying there's a greater allegiance and we can't put conditions on following Jesus. Well, I wonder where Jesus is asking you to follow him. Where is he asking you to serve him specifically in your life? Where is Jesus asking you to follow him? Well, sometimes when people uh, raise that question, they start to think about the kind of job that they might be able to do to serve the Lord. And I think that's a very good thing to do. It's a good question to ask, uh, what kind of job can I do to bring glory to God and also to be engaged in his mission? But actually doing a job is only one aspect of our lives, isn't it? There's a whole lot of other things that we could think about, about how we could be following Jesus and serving him. And so I'm always curious about other dimensions of life that we could think about to actually serve Jesus and follow him. Now, although he's just corrected people about uh, going back and saying goodbye to their families, family is actually a good place for us to think about what does it mean to remember to follow Jesus there? What does it mean to be a servant of Jesus in our families where God's put us? Most of us have families and also extended families, don't we? Now, I come from a world possibly like a lot of families, where it's not always easy to get along with everybody in the family. Has anybody else had that kind of problem, or is it just me? Okay, it's just me then, so I'll, uh, I'll just take that as a given, and we'll, we'll keep this moving. Uh, but as a Christian, it gets me wondering, how can I serve Jesus, perhaps, within not only my nuclear family, but in the, in the broader context of my family? And I wonder if you've ever thought about that too. 
what does it mean for you to be a follower of Jesus in the context of your broader family as well? What does it look like for you to bring glory to him in that situation? Well, perhaps there could be increasing levels of contact, even being more in touch with a family. That, that could actually be a place to start. Perhaps there could be more honesty with respect to us taking a stand and not denying the Christian values that we have and being perhaps a little bit more honest and forthright. The other side of that coin, by the way, is if you're too honest and forthright and nobody wants to see you uh, because you're too outspoken, maybe we could become a bit better at listening to our families and and accepting that uh, people also have different views. Then we can work on keeping our cool when we disagree with them. There's a a challenge to follow Jesus in having a bit of self-control. Perhaps we could be more of salt and light and love, particularly in the face of sometimes very intense situations. And families can be extremely intense. Well, God has placed us each one in the families that we're part of, in those broader networks. But I'm always a little bit curious about what it might mean to follow Jesus and to be a bit more like him uh, in the world that God's put us. Well, at the start of this talk, it might have annoyed you when I quoted a line from Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. How does it feel to be on your own with no direction home like a complete unknown, like a rolling stone? Well, I think a Christian answer is that although there might be times when we could feel that we don't have a lot of direction, when we might feel like we are a bit alone and people don't understand, well, God in his goodness and kindness has given us Jesus to follow. And he's given us other people who follow him as well. I guess some of the question rests now with whether we're willing to to follow his lead and to live for him in all of the areas of our lives where God's placed us. That's the the challenge. Are Are we willing to rise to the challenge to be good followers of Jesus? Well, may God strengthen us to do that and to do it for his glory and for his honor. Let us pray. Lord, Jesus, uh, Lord God, we do thank you for Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Uh, we thank you for his willingness to do your will and to go to Jerusalem, uh, to bring about a departure and his exodus uh, for the liberation of your people from sin and death. And Lord, we do thank you that he calls us to count the cost and see if we're prepared to follow him. And so, Lord, as we do live with Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, We just pray for each of the areas that you place us in in life, that we'd be good followers, that we grow to be more like Jesus our Lord. And Lord, we do pray for your strength to do that and to to be more consistent. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness for the times when we fall short. And Lord, we do thank you that um, as we follow Jesus, you've brought us into your family with a whole lot of other people who follow him and serve him too. And so, Lord, we do pray for your help as we continue Uh, on that journey uh, to follow him until we become uh, those who are in your kingdom, feasting at your table, in your kingdom, at the end altogether. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.